0: For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled Our Hiding Place. Mr. Steele. Thank you, Reg. Good afternoon, everyone. Recently, in our uh, homeschool uh, family, we've been reading the book. The Hiding Place. In fact, we just uh, finished it. And I'm sure many of you know that book. It is the story of Kari Ten Boom and her family. And if you haven't read it, if you've only maybe seen, I think there's a couple of movies and, and so on, but if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend that you do. The life experience, the incredible bravery, um, the spiritual strength and commitment and faith of Corey and her family is and remains an incredibly inspirational story. And it is perhaps a story that's needed now more than ever because of the world that we live in, perhaps more than even during her own time. You know, she... She, after the war, conducted a ministry going around the world, teaching people, sharing with people of all, you know, all backgrounds and countries about what happened to her, her family and the experience of living under the Third Reich and the, the Nazi control. As many of you probably know, Corey and her family, who lived in Harlem, not in New York City, but Harlem, the Netherlands, they defied the occupying German authorities during World War II and secretly hid Jews in their home, creating special hiding places for the Jews and others that were being hunted by the Germans that were occupying their country. They are credited to have saved over eight hundred Jewish people during their their time. Eight hundred. By one family. It was, as you know, the plan of Hitler and his National Socialists to murder this specific subset of the German people and then of Europe as they gained more control over the European continent. This subset, this population were mostly Jewish people with some other undesirables as the the Germans decided who they were. And they were considered a lesser species, not fit to be part of the pure-blood Aryan nation. Not fit to be part of their ideology and their new world as they were trying to create it. The Jews were considered to be a source of all corruption, political and financial manipulation, and also the source of disease and, as we might term it today, genetic uh, degeneration, adding impurity into the Aryan races. As stated in the United States Holocaust Memorial website, in this false view, Jews were an alien race that fed off the host nation, poisoned its culture, seized its economy, and enslaved its workers and farmers. The Nazis claimed that race mixing through marriage weakened Germany. This hateful depiction, although neither new nor unique to the Nazi party, became a state-supported image. As the Nazi regime tightened control over the press and publishing after 1933, propagandists tailored messages to diverse audiences. These audiences included the many Germans who were not Nazis and who did not read the party papers. Public displays of anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany took uh, took a variety of forms from posters and newspapers to films and radio messages. Propagandists offered more subtle uh, anti-Semitic language and viewpoints for the educated, the middle-class Germans offended by the crude caricatures. University professors and religious leaders gave anti-Semitic themes respectability by incorporating them into their lectures and sermons. Think about that. Going to church, you've been to this church for a long time, whether it's Lutheran or Catholic or whatever it may be, and then you start to get anti Semitic themes, starting to change the minds of the people as they're listening to this. Jews were not only uh, were not the only group excluded from the vision of the national community. Propaganda helped to define who would be excluded from the new society, and justified measures against the outsiders. These so-called outsiders included Jews, Roma, or Gypsies, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Germans viewed as genetically inferior and harmful to national health. And who got to decide that? people with mental illnesses and intellectual or physical disabilities, epileptics, congenitally deaf and blind persons, chronic alcoholics, drug users, and others. Now, you might be wondering why I'm bringing this up today. What's the purpose of reviewing just, you know, a very small part of history? and not in you know in the grand scheme of things not that far back in history relatively recent history what's what's my goal in exploring and remembering what we now call the holocaust and what we would now call <clears> or <throat> what the 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 Germans called the final solution well i think we need to start Considering how we as Christians should conduct ourselves, should we find ourselves in a world that looked like and looks like the one that Kari Tambun experienced, we need to give it some serious thought. We need to think about how we would live in a world that is similar to that. Now the first thing that's really important to note about Kari and her family is that when these things started happening to the Jews, they didn't just suddenly become interested and start helping the Jews. Her family was actually helping the Jews in the Netherlands for a hundred years. A hundred years. So taken from uh, the Kari Ten Boom online archive, at the Dallas Baptist University, it says this. The Ten Boom family, the Dutch, um, I'll skip that part. The Ten Boom family had a great interest in the love and love for the Jewish people. In 1844, Corey's great grandfather, William Ten Boom, started a a meeting dedicated to praying for the Jewish people. In 1944, exactly 100 years later, Cory and her family were arrested for their part in saving Jews, uh, Jewish lives in World War II. Most were released, but four members of the family died as a result of their imprisonment. 100 years later. And during that whole time, they had been helping Jewish families. They had been providing material and spiritual help to Jewish individuals, seeing to their needs. It was, it was a family tradition. It wasn't something that just came along when uh, the Jews started being persecuted by the Germans. So, when they started rounding up the Jewish people, what did the Ten Boom family do? They carried on doing what they already had been doing. They had developed a a tradition, a habit. This is what we do. We serve this particular community. And one of their goals, of course, was to bring Jewish people to Jesus. They were a Christian family, very dedicated to the gospel. And so when the Germans came in, they took action with compassion and care like they always had. And in spite of the terrible risks, that they started to face, and the consequences that they knew would come on them. Losing some of their own family members, but saving 800 lives. So again, this raises the question, why am I talking about this? Why is this a question? Well, I think it's something that we should consider. What are we going to do when we find ourselves in a similar situation? What are we going to do when we find the world around us becoming very much like the world that the Ten Booms had to live in? Because we've got some serious ethical questions to ask and to answer. They had to decide if they would follow the laws that the Nazis had put in place or if they were going to defy those laws. They had to consider what their actions could be and what the consequences were. They had to decide how far could they go and not risk their Christian faith. Renee was reminding me this morning that Corey's sister, uh, I guess the Germans came into the house at one point and her sister was sitting there with another woman who had blonde hair and blue eyes. But she was Jewish. And the German officer asked her, Corey's sister, Is she Jewish? And she said, Yes. And she was arrested. And of course, the lady was arrested and taken away. And later, Corey, I guess, asked her sister, Why did you say that? Well, she had determined that she would not lie, no matter what. She would not lie. And she had an absolute faith that regardless of what happened, God would protect that young woman. And sure enough, in the facility where she was being held, it was raided by the resistance and all the Jews that were being held there escaped. God honored her faith. God honored her guts to stick to what she believed. Now you and I may say, well, we could find a way to obfuscate this, right? I was thinking, no, I would just say, does she look Jewish? She looks German to me, don't you think? But she she just determined for herself that she would not lie. And so this is the question, these are the questions that I'm I'm throwing out today, is what would we do in those similar situations? How would we act? Would we lie to save somebody's life, to stop them from being arrested? Where is that connection between our actions and that moment of faith and trust in God? So the first step, I think, in considering these things is to accept, accept and recognize the real possibility that the evil that that Corey Ten Boom and her family saw can happen again. And in fact, you know, if we just go around the world, there are many countries where it's been happening almost since World War II. And so the real question for us is, can that kind of world exist here where we live? We have to be willing to accept that that is a possibility. And you might think, well, that's impossible. We have laws and structures and, and things in place. Heck, we have 200 million guns in the United States. Surely that will stop that kind of world happening. And yet if you stop and consider what we've seen place in the last 24 months, It's pretty remarkable. It's really remarkable when we think about what has happened in the last 24 months. Back in November of 2019, if somebody had told you that in less than two years, in less than two years, a significant number of citizens of the United States would be denied the opportunity to work unless they received a particular medical treatment. Think about that if I had told you that two years ago. I think you would think I was crazy. Right? They're not going to be able to work unless they have a particular medical treatment. Now, I am not talking about the validity or the right or wrong of taking vaccines. Everybody should take a vaccine if it's available to them, if they want to. And if you don't want to, you should be free to not take it. Free people should have the right to choose for themselves. But when the government starts to compel citizens to receive a vaccine or lose their rights, lose their rights, then what kind of world are we heading into? A dark world a much different world than we've all experienced thus far or to this point. In many U.S. states now, citizens, including doctors and nurses, firefighters, police officers, and just regular old folks going to work, blue collar, white collar, whatever it may be, they are losing their rights. They are losing the right to go to work and provide for their families. And that is huge. That dictates the, the path of the nature of their entire life and their family's life. It takes away their ability to live fundamentally, doesn't it? Because if you can't work, and maybe you can get some state benefit for a while, but then how are you going to eat? And then there's an interesting question. Because I asked earlier, I said, well, could we imagine a world here where we live, where as Christians we're faced with ethical dilemmas? What if you're a Christian business owner and you think it's wrong to be putting people out of work? What do you do? Do you say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight this. Okay, there may be some legal challenges. There certainly are. and There was certainly some good news in regards to that yesterday. But what would you do? Would you reject it? Would you lie to the government? Oh, yeah, they're all vaccinated. We're good. Did you look at their vaccine? Yep, yeah, I looked at it. It's good. It's a, it's a new version of, is this woman a Jew? You realize that? It's the government coming in and asking who is who and what is what and then punishing those based on their actions and their responses. What would we do? Again, quoting from the United States Holocaust Memorial website, it's going through a a process of how people were identified and and then uh, messaged to. So how the enemies were identified of the state and how the larger community was was messaged uh, to through propaganda. It said propaganda also helped lay the groundwork for the announcement of major anti-Jewish statutes at Nuremberg on September 15, 1935, which were called the Nuremberg Race Laws. So what had to precede the, the German government, the Nazi government, from creating official laws, had to precede that was a propaganda campaign. Why is that? It's to make it palatable, isn't it? It's to make it palatable to those that may have objections to the law. But if you can encourage and put pressure and community pressure, peer pressure, and change people's minds, then they might just accept the law when it's put out. The decrees followed a wave of anti-Jewish violence perpetrated by Inpatient Nazi Party radicals. So we had propaganda, and then we had violence, and then comes the laws. Two distinct laws were made. Uh, made up the Nuremberg Laws. The law for the protection of German blood and honor prohibited marriage and extramarital relations between Jews and persons of German or related blood. The Reich citizenship law defined Jews as subjects of the state, a second class status. So, a citizen had rights, subjects were what? Subjected to the laws that they were given. It's very, very different. The laws affected some 450,000 full Jews, defined as those with three or four Jewish grandparents and belonging to the Jewish religion, and another 250,000 others, including converted Jews um, and those with some Jewish patronage. Together, they accounted for less than 1% of the German population. For months before the announcement of the Nuremberg Laws, the Nazi party press aggressively incited Germans against racial pollution with the presence of Jews in public swimming pools becoming a major theme. And the idea there was that, you know, this is kind of like the, the anchor issue, right, that the propagandists and the media at that time were coalescing the arguments around well, those Jews getting into the water with your Aryan children, that's, that's going to pollute them, right? That's going to affect what? Their health. Those are the ones that are carrying sickness and impure bloodlines. Now, I'm not saying... And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that any particular government, federal or state, are Nazis. I'm not saying that. But we need to recognize and be prepared for authoritarian measures. We're already seeing them. There are going to be more. And we need to recognize that, that that turns citizens into subjects. We need to be willing to see it when it appears so that we can be prepared and decide what we as Christians are going to do. What is our response? What should we do in a world that looks like the world that Korik Temboom had to endure? This is not an easy question, and neither should it be. It's not a new question because it's the same question that the early church also had to answer. Would we defy the authorities? Would we hide Jews and other targets of the authorities? Would we give them of our own meager rations? Would we share the food that we were going to give to our children with these strangers in times of incredible? want and rationing. That's the kind of spirit and decisions that the Tembo and family made. Would we make the same decisions? Would we share our precious medicines and vitamins that they so desperately needed because of malnutrition? These are not easy questions. And they're, they're hard in many ways for us to entertain and yet we need to entertain them and think about them and look for the Spirit of God to lead us. You know, Corey obviously didn't feel that it was wrong to lie to a German who was trying to round up Jews, but her sister did. So we might have some variation and difference from one another, but we still need to study and look for the leading of the holy spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 13, Peter says something that causes us maybe even more trouble <laughs> in this question. He says, "Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not as as a liberty, as a cloak uh, for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the king. How do you feel about that scripture? Honor the king. So, were those revolutionaries terrible, bad people for rejecting the rule of King George? Honor the king, submit to the authorities. They're an instrument of God. What does that mean? What does it say to you? If the government comes in and says you cannot employ a certain subset of the people, you can't give them a job, what are you going to do? People in this country are dealing with that question right now. In one way or the other. It's not so far fetched anymore is it? What do you do at that point? Do you feel that the law is wrong. You can reject it? It's immoral. It's an immoral law. So I'm not, I'm not going to follow that. Okay. And then. What are the consequences for doing so? How do you do what's right in the middle of it? What would Curry Tamboom have done? Peter says submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. I was sitting there thinking about this and I was thinking well if I was an employer and I was in that situation what would I do? I know I would turn all of those employees into volunteers. Yeah they don't work for me anymore they're volunteers, right? I just happened to pay their mortgage and put gas in their car and get their groceries and pay for their doctor's office visits. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's some creative ways around this. Nope, they're volunteers. But they're doing the same job they did before. Yep, yeah, but they're volunteering now. Or do you just defy the law? Keep paying them. Keep doing the work. And each time the bill comes for the fine, tear it up, put it in the trash can, and keep doing that. And have that moment of faith like Hari Ten Boom's sister did and leaving it into God's hands. I don't know. The Apostle Paul also makes it not any easier. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom He didn't help us out any, did he? I was hoping he would say, you can be revolutionaries when they're bad. It does seem fairly straightforward. Follow the law of the land, no matter what. Do what the governing authorities say, and we will be right with God and with man. But is that really the case? is it really that simple? The Nazis used these two scriptures to coerce and pressure Christians in Germany and in Europe to do what they wanted them to do. How awful is that? God's Word being manipulated and twisted to make people to force people, to scare people into having a part in the destruction of their own people. But is this really the case? Is it really that simple? Well, Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, O no one anything except... So, you know, live debt free. That's good. But don't owe anyone except to love one another. And what is that? How do we love one another? How do we love a persecuted group of people? How do we, if we were in Nazi Germany, how would we love the Jews? He makes it clear. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Mm. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm. To a neighbor. It does no harm to anyone. Therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. It's interesting that he has these two passages together, isn't it? Obey the authorities. I would also, I would add in in my understanding of that if they are acting reasonably good. But do you obey them when they are encouraging you, forcing you to take actions that will do harm to others? That's not loving your neighbor. So what's the guiding principle that we should have? If by obeying a law of the state you are aiding in the theft of property, is that love? How many Jewish houses were just taken from long-standing German Jewish families? Priceless artifacts and paintings, and you know, we've, we've, we've heard all those stories, haven't we, of how they ended up in the United States or in other parts of Europe and, and the survivors of the Holocaust? came across those and rightly so claimed them back. The state encouraged this. What if by doing what the authorities say, you are lying about someone, bearing false witness? What if by following the law and reporting that there are Jews living in the house across the street from you, you are bringing about their death? It was the law. And if you knew and didn't report it, you could face charges. Well, then we have a problem, don't we? Because sometimes the laws of man follow a higher moral code, a good morality, and sometimes they don't. We've heard about it recently in the form of, you know, there's been, of course, a lot of coverage of the various different school boards across the country in some specific places. They have authorized the use of essentially pornographic novels for the education of children. They had the authority to do so. But was it moral? Absolutely not. It's evil. It's corrupting. But They had the power to do it, didn't they? So can we just blindly follow that authority? So we have this conflict. We have this difficulty. And Peter and Paul telling us, on one hand, that we should submit to the authorities. And on the other, to obey the law of God. To cause no harm to anyone else which is loving them. So what are we to do? Well, we have an interesting legal proceeding that we can look at. And have any of you, you watched the, uh, the recent Rittenhouse trial? It's, uh, it ma- it's actually makes for pretty good TV because it's, it's kind of a train wreck uh, from a legal proceeding standpoint. Well, we have kind of an interesting legal proceeding here with Peter himself. And so, you know, he's the one of the ones that's just told us to follow the authorities, to obey those that have been put over us. And yet, we have an example that gives us maybe more definition and more understanding. An example for us to follow. A template maybe that we can think about when dealing with the authorities. And it is interesting also because it's the first time that the newly formed church, the brand new church of Jesus Christ comes into conflict with the religious authorities. We find it in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1 where we find the start of it. This is the crime that Peter committed (laughs) in order to be brought before the authorities. It says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they had laid (coughs) daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask arms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for arms. (coughs) Excuse me. And fixing his eyes upon him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging, uh, begging arms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now, more than just healing this man, this was now a big opportunity for a good sermon. He got everybody's attention, and Peter starts to to explain how this was done, and to explain how Jesus fulfilled the prophets, fulfilled fulfilled the 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 coming. He was the the Messiah and how he was the Messiah. And he, he starts to call them to repentance. In what name? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's a critical point. Because when we drop down to Acts chapter 4 and verse 1, that is the contentious part of the case. So it says, Now, as they spoke to the people, Peter and John, the the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, came upon them, being greatly disturbed, that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, (coughs) many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass that on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Anais, the high priest, (coughs) So sorry. Caiaphas, um, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And they had set them in the midst. And then they asked, (coughs) By what powers or by what name have you done this? Well, you can ask Trevor back there. This was a mistake, a legal mistake, right? Because as every good lawyer knows, you don't ask questions that you don't already know the answer to, right? Well, they just opened the door for Peter to tell them ultimately what they didn't want to hear. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel... If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Thank you, Ken. (coughs) So... If you're going to judge us on the good thing that we have done, in this case healing a lame man, or in other cases hiding those who have done no wrong, feeding those that the authorities have deemed not allowed to work, then he says this, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed stand with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of council, they conferred amongst themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? How are we going to handle this now? Not only have they healed this guy, but they have the audacity to just talk to us like they have authority or something. For indeed, that a notable miracle had been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It kind of tells you about their heart, isn't it? They were looking for a way to deny it. And it wasn't, you know, if only for the fact that the whole city could see it, heard about it, they would have denied it. It was a conspiracy. He wasn't really lame. Can't say that because everybody's been seeing this guy for how many decades? Right, But it, it reveals the heart of them. They wanted to deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this, in this name. So they called them back, commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So, they commanded them to not teach or heal in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Peter and John never said Jesus' name ever again, right? <laughs> yeah. They didn't stop healing in Jesus' name. They didn't stop preaching in Jesus' name. They defied the authorities. And they said no. And, you know, I thought their answer was pretty clever, too. They didn't just say, no, we're not going to do that. They said, well, maybe you should judge whether we should obey man or God. Because, I mean, well, no, you're supposed to obey man. No, wait. They had no answer for that either. So they were smart in their answers. But they still defied the authorities. So what are we to make of this? How is this going to help us? They gave Peter and John a specific command to not speak in Jesus' name and they defied it anyway. We know this because later guess what happens? They're brought up before the authorities again. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 17, then the high priest rose up (coughs) and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in a common prison. But at night the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. Do you realize God's encouraging them to defy the authorities? Wow. Because he releases them and then says, go to the most public place and keep telling them the gospel. Keep telling them about my name. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And when they had heard it, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who came with him called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison because, of course, they were at the temple. They returned and reported saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest of the captain um, of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So no one came and told them, saying, look. Uh, So one, rather, came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you'd put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. (laughs) I mean, God has an amazing sense of humor. Oh, yeah? Watch this. Then the captain went to, with the officers and brought them with violence. Well, without violence, rather. For they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. Again, I think it's kind of interesting that maybe they wanted to bring some violence. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? Didn't we tell you that? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. What an amazing statement. They meant it in one way, but these disciples, these apostles, were determined to bring the saving blood of Jesus Christ on them. He doesn't even know what he's saying. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God is exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to those things. And also, And so also, is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Brave men, strong in the faith, building for the first time a tradition in the church that defies the authorities. It's interesting, isn't it? This is the guiding principle for us. It's really simple. You know, we could make all these ethical arguments and these moral arguments, but it's really just this simple. This is the ethical rule in my mind. If there is a conflict between man's law and God's law, we follow God's law. Period. Right? Right? It's that simple and it's that hard. As I mentioned earlier, the Nazis tried to use the words of Peter and Paul to say that you should follow the authorities no matter what, that you should do as you're told no matter what you're told. They were basically claiming that might makes right that so many times. They were the authority and God said obey the authority so you have to obey us. But you see they didn't look into Peter's life. They didn't understand Peter's life. They didn't understand the whole context of his faith and what he taught and what he preached and what he showed by example. All the disciples followed the laws of man unless they conflicted with the laws of God. They chose to follow God every time. They chose love every time. And that's a really powerful message if you haven't read and if you've forgotten uh, the story in The Hiding Place. The only reason that they did what they did was through love the only reason they could endure what they endured was because of love. And later in life, Kari Tambum came across one of the prison guards that so terribly treated her and her sister. And he had come to listen to her and tell her story. And he came up to her and he asked, uh, he, he I think he just said that or expressed that God's grace was so amazing that even he could be redeemed by it. And he put out his hand to shake her hand. And she struggled. And she was praying in that moment, God, help me to lift my hand because I can't do this. I cannot do this. And she did, and she raised her, her hand and shook his hand, her persecutor, And she described this immense power flowing through her body and invigorated her body and she felt love. Pretty amazing. I'm not sure what comes next for us in our corner of the world in this moment of time or the years ahead. Who Who could have foretold where we are now? two years ago. We have all kinds of situations out in front of us. We have a lot of uncertainty about the future. It's not clear at all what kind of world we're moving into. It does seem that we're all kind of giving up on the idea of the normal world we had before. But who knows? Perhaps we will. Perhaps we will return to that. Perhaps God will give us grace and give us some more time to choose the right and reject evil. I don't know. But what I do know is we have to prepare our hearts and our minds and be prepared to live in the kind of world that Kari Ten Boom lived in. We have to get ready. We have to get our noses in the word of God and we have to fill ourselves with that love the love that enables us to follow his commandments towards our fellow man, even those that may persecute us. That's the moment that Jesus was really talking about, wasn't he? Blessed are you when you, when you love those that persecute you and despitefully use you. We need God's guidance. We need his righteousness. Righteousness. His love to help us. I pray that we are able.